All right. Well, getting back into mid of Romans 9 here, let's back up for just a minute and have someone uh, read us verses 15 through 18 again. Can I get a volunteer to read that out loud to the class, please? Go for it. 18. Yes, sir. Okay, great. So right then we jump into verse 19 uh, where Paul picks up with, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Okay, so let's start right there this morning. Here's that for you. Morning. And um, first question that First thing we need to see is why, why Paul's bringing up this, this question, why he's bringing that to mind. Um, he's referring back to these verses he just gave us in 15 through 18. So first question for the class today is why is Paul making this statement in verse 19? Why, why is he bringing this up? What is your guys' thoughts on, on the reason Paul's saying this in verse 19? Right. So he's bringing up this objection, yeah, because it seems like, like the the natural question that a lot of people might ask. Say that again. If it's God's will, why does he allow things to happen? Okay, good questions. What else? Any, any other reasons? You guys see that he's bringing this up? What's going on in the, in the person's heart that would be asking this? Or in their mind? What shall we say then? Is there no justice with God? Is there? Verse 14, may it never be. Right? That same question and that same line of thinking is likely uh, in the hearts of the readers and in the hearts of even the believers that Paul is writing to. Um, but he's bringing this up on purpose. So we need to remember what, what chapter 9 is about. Right? Paul started off talking in chapter 9 about, about who? Who is he concerned with? Looking into the context of this chapter, who is Paul's heart concerned with so much for right now? Israel, right? He, he would be willing to give up his, his own salvation if he had that power, so his brothers could have it. But also we know that before that, in chapter 8, what were some of the big, big things he brought up at the end of chapter 8? What was he discussing there? Do we remember back then? What can separate us from the love of God? Right, nothing. Nothing can separate us, okay? So, again, we're looking into 
Paul talking about his brethren here and why God has chosen to save some, but there's so many that aren't believing that don't know God. So what are they, what are they questioning? And what would the reader be questioning in this verse that Paul's trying to address? If he doesn't find, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So in these verses, basically 15 through, through 19, whose free will are we talking about? Whose? Are we talking about man's free will in these verses? Do you feel like that's what Paul's addressing, that someone's heart is, is thinking on their free will? Yeah? I, I think he is too. But in the verses, whose free will is he talking about? Who has mercy on whom he has mercy, and who hardens who he hardens? Who does that? It's God, right? So these, these verses here that we're looking at, we're, we're discussing God's free will, and Paul's knowing that the, the reader of this letter is concerned about their own free will, right? About what they get to choose and what they get um, to make choices on in their life. Yes? Yes? <laughs> right, so God's will is sovereign. He gets to make all the choices um, on, on everything that, that happens on earth and with his creation, right? And, and you're in line with that. And so his will is free to do as he chooses, right? It's not determined by what our choices are. Our choices are determined by what his choices are. So Paul's addressing that concern in verse 19 here on what us as the reader, the Romans as the reader, would have concern with. How can God find fault if no one can resist his will? Um, so three things, uh, three, there's three views on free will. Uh, Jonathan Edwards defined will as um, the will is the mind choosing, your mind the human's mind being able to choose. Now we're made in the image of God, um, so we're able to make choices of our own. Uh, but there's three views historically of free will in, in, um, in the world. Outside of God's free will, we're talking about man's free will. The first one would uh, be called the freedom of indifference, and that's what the world, the unbelieving world typically um, refers to when they are talking about free will, and that's making choices completely free of any outside influences. Um, completely free of any outside influences. Outside of God's influence, outside of the world's influence, outside of mom and dad's influence. Yes, sir? Right. Yeah. So that that's a... a, a view of free will that the world will take, um, that lots of religions will take. Um, there's two other views historically that Christians will line up with, and one is the either called the freedom of contrary choice or libertarian view. Um, and in real short, that, just, that means it's the ability to make choices contrary to uh, the person's nature, that they're basically at a neutral point in their choosing. Uh, 
when it comes to the choosing of, of Christ and of God, they recognized that the, um, that the nature of the person was, um, it was damaged during the fall, and it, it is corrupt, but through the grace of God, through his grace to all human beings, to all sinners, that that person is able to make the choice um, to follow God of his own free will or not to follow God of his own free will. Um, so some of our brothers and sisters will, will land there um, on that view of free, uh, free will. And then the third view of free will is called freedom of self-determination. This one talks about the abilities to choose determine on, determined on one's own desire, but within, within their disposition. So it recognizes that the heart is corrupt, that um, the, the human is depraved from the fall, and they can choose within their disposition, which we know according to uh, Scripture that the human can't choose God on his own, that, that God's got to draw him to God for him to choose God, and um, there's that working together, right? God works first, and then as we are drawn to the light, um, we, we definitely um, are inclined to choose God, right? But it's not on our own will. It's not a, out of the freedom of our own mind because out of nature itself, out of our nature, we aren't able to do that. Um, we see that throughout Romans. We see that in Ephesians, Ephesians 2 especially. Um, we see it throughout Scripture that God brings the believer to himself and the believer is then repentant and trusts in, in God. So those are three different views. Um, and we got to remember that our free, will, our, our free will cannot supersede anything that God chooses, right? We cannot choose anything outside of God's will. Um, that he's the one that makes his decisions beforehand, and then we go forth from there. So, if God's will is, is free, then our will is limited within what we're, allowed to, what we're allowed to choose from. So Paul's addressing that here. Paul's addressing that with the reader when, when he says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's not beating around the bush. He goes right to the heart of the matter that, that man's going to have and, and brings this up, like he's been doing throughout Romans. We've seen it in chapter 6 and chapter 5, I believe, and we're, we saw it earlier in this chapter, chapter 9, and he's just addressing this. So moving on, um, no, not moving on. We're still on verse 19 knowing that that's what he's doing, and knowing what verse 20 says, we're not going there yet. We will. So hang on, hang tight for that. But with verse 9, as, as believers, as Christians who know God's word, can we answer ourselves these questions in verse 19? Why does he still find fault? And who resists his will? What would you guys say? How can we answer those questions? Jerry?
to ask it does, yes. And his holiness, he is perfectly righteous and just and good in all ways. <laughs> yeah, man's heart's naturally inclined. Yeah. Yeah, and the more we, we read and study it, it reveals the less we know and the less we understand, for sure. So we know that God's creation was perfect in the beginning. Um, he made everything, and everything was, was very good. And God didn't create sin, although he has allowed it in creation. And why has he allowed it? Thoughts on that? For his glory, very good, very good answer. How do we know that? Yeah, that's his motivation for everything. <clears throat> uh-huh. So our, yeah, our God, he's holy, uh, perfect, just, but he cannot be unjust to sin and corruption and evil, right? He has to be just towards those things if he is all that the Bible claims that he is, and um, that is what we believe and trust in. So he has to be just to those things. So that, uh, one, is how he can find fault. Um, what about resisting his will? Who can resist his will? So does, does everyone do exactly what God's will is perfectly? Right? Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, pick, I'm picking up what you're, what you're trying to say too, though. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into some stuff that's, that is hard to understand and wrap our mind around, and I'm, I'm definitely not as qualified as I want to talk about this, but we'll try. Um, so, yeah, out of, so, the, so God's sovereignty, um, there's, there's a difference between God's sovereign will and God's revealed will. Um, and out of my gotquestions.org sheet here on, on definitions of that, it's quite long, but just in general, God's sovereign will, or his dec decorative, is that how you say that, Jeremy? Dec declarative will is what he's decreed to happen. Now, no, we can't do anything outside of that will because that's what he's set in place in the plan that he's already have, had put in motion from the beginning um, that's where he, he chose who he chose, and he's um, set Christ to be the Savior of us all from the very beginning, right? He did all that and everything that will come, um, and we can't operate outside of that. But uh, within God's uh, per perceptive will, is that how you say that one? Perceptive will. Um, that's what he's revealed to us, and that's what he's told us his desires for us are, which is what we find in the Bible, and that's the, the Ten Commandments, and that's the moral law, 
Um, and that's what God desires us to do in the New Testament through um, living, living Christ's life. And we have the will, and we definitely exercise that ability to obey or disobey that. So in that sense, um, man continually makes choices contrary to God's will, right? We're, we're doing that as unbelievers with every decision we make until we come to Christ. And we're doing that as believers when we put our hope and our trust and our thoughts and our mind on the world, on ourselves, on, on money, on jobs, on riches, on where to live, on anything but Christ, where we're not putting him first, but we're putting ourselves first. Um, and then other stuff where we're just directly sinning, right? Where we, where we lie or we cheat or we steal or we do stuff that we, we know that uh, we shouldn't be doing. But we're directly making choices contrary to God's will in that sense. Right, so in a sense, we do resist his will. In a sense, we definitely don't because we can't go outside of his um, decretive will that has decreed what will be. And in allowing sin into, into this world and human nature from Adam being depraved from then on, uh, we know that our, our natures are depraved and because of what scripture tells us, we, we can't come to God on our own volition, on our own desires, from our own heart. But his will is that we do, and his will is to choose some that will, right? And we know that he will, they will. And we know that God hasn't chosen everyone, because then everyone would be saved, and that would, be, have, have, that would have been decreed through his will from the beginning too. But we know that we don't see that, right? The scripture doesn't tell us that everyone is saved. There are some that are saved. Okay, thoughts, questions on that? <laughs> yeah, I got three of those going on in my house right now. So, yeah. <laughs> Very rebellious. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. All the time. Yeah, and, and it brought me back to Romans 8, verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is never, never, not even able to do so. It's not able to. We see that throughout Scripture and, and more than just one place as well. Okay, good. Let's keep moving. Verse 20, Paul, Paul doesn't answer those questions, though. We just did, but Paul doesn't answer those questions, does he? Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? So now we're in trouble. Is man allowed to ask God these questions? That's my question to you this morning, this class. Okay. Why? Why? Yes. There you go. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, so...
can, but Paul is answering that in a way that um, shows us where we're sinful in doing that. Right? We do have the free will to ask these questions. It's the free will being exercised, but that doesn't mean it's outside of sin. So Paul paints a picture for us um, in this verse right here to reposition our mind to its proper place. Because the way that the reader and we might be thinking as we're reading through this, um, the first time you come to those questions, you might agree with them. Yeah, yeah, how is that possible? And so Paul changes the trajectory of your thought there, right? Instead of um, trying to argue and answer those, he says, on the contrary, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And in saying that, what do we see him implying when he says, oh man, what, what is he doing there? Thoughts on that? Say that again. You all right? Right? Creatures? Good? We're just worms? <laughs> yeah. So you think he's saying this sarcastically with a tone in his voice? On the contrary, who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? It's possible. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? So it's, it's taking that reader's mind, especially the believer, and um, repositioning where our hearts are at that moment. Because if we're asking those questions and we're wanting those answers, um, we're not positioned in our mind correctly. I would say we're trying to be on the judgment seat looking down at God's decisions. And I think Paul's pointing that out here. Again, he's talking about his brethren. He's talking about the Israelites that he loves and he cares for um, more, than, more than most people would, more than who he's probably writing to did, and definitely more than we have in our hearts because he was there with them and he knew them and he lived with them. Uh, he grew up with them, and he was um, just the, the poster child, right? And he, he knows where he was lost and where he was wrong, and he has this heart that's longing for them. And again, he's using, he's using this here to explain why God's chosen, how God's chosen some, and why he's, not, why he's chosen not to choose some of them as well. Um, but as we ask these questions... We're raising and elevating ourselves to a, a seat that the judge should sit on. And we're not in the correct position when it comes to creation and creator. The creator is holy and the whole creation is his, right? Can I have somebody flip over to Job 40? Job 40. We'll look. As you remember, if you've read through Job, um, at the end of the book, Job gets rebuked by God for several chapters. As you read through that, it's just, oh, it's kind of cringeworthy as, as what the spectacle God is making out of Job. And Job is his, is his servant. Job loves God. But... He positioned himself incorrectly in his heart and in his mind. 
Who's got Job 40? Read verses 1 and 2 for us. Let the, say it again. Will the fault finder, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And I think that's what, hey Amy, <laughs> that's what God's um, pointing out. Uh, that's what Paul's pointing out to us here in this scripture as well, that we are being fault finders and we're trying to contend with the Almighty. And this is a, this is a harsh rebuke that Job gets, and uh, that God just continues to lay on him throughout, uh, again, four chapters in the book, and it just goes on and on and on. It's a very good example of God's power, God's sovereignty, God's knowledge, and our um, minute ability to understand any of that. So what response should a creation have to its creator? Not my will, but yours be done. Good. And that heart definitely should be from all believers. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? And I am as of dust and ashes. Yep, and he repents in dust and ashes, right. He was embarrassed. And um, again, Paul's rebuking those who think this. And as believers, um, we should use this as an opportunity to reposition our hearts as well. Uh, as unbelievers who are surely reading this as well in Rome, um, it's probably even just more offensive to them, right? It's more of a stumbling block to them, not getting these questions answered, but reading this as a rebuke to them as well. Yes, please. That's a, that's a great question, Joe. Yeah, so... Like Jeremy said, where is our motivation coming from? If our motivation is to be the judge of God's decisions, because in our hearts it says, well, I know better than that. In our heart it says, well, that's not right. There's got to be better righteousness. If it comes from the wrong motivation, then we need to repent. Then we need to be on our knees and ask for forgiveness for that. But we are allowed to ask God questions. And we are allowed to lament and we are allowed to cry out and scream to our Creator in sorrow and um, ask Him to help us in understanding, ask us to align our thoughts and our, our wills with His and ask us to um, be able to accept what is happening without always knowing why. And again, with the hope and the uh, trust in Christ and in God that once we get to heaven, we might have some of those answers. We might not, but we might have some of them. And I think we'll be able to righteously and unsinfully ask lots of questions when, will you remember them? I think your memory might be perfect. 
I'm, I can't say for certain. Mark, you got any thoughts on that? <laughs> Will I have perfect memory in heaven? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of reading about angels just continually watching and learning and, and learning from us and learning from what's happening in the world. So we can look forward to that, right? And that sounds fun. And it sounds great when we can do it righteously and not in sin. And um, our hearts aren't in a questionable position. So, yeah, that's good. All right, well, jumping into verse 21. Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? But we see this is still a question. It's not a statement necessarily. It's a question. So I'm seeing this as the creator's authority is still in question in the reader's mind. And Paul's still making a point here to the reader as he's writing this out for, the, for us. Um, the potter has the rights over the clay. As we read this question, it's rhetorical, right? Because it's just common sense. As we can um, relate to that, they could relate to it even better. Back in those days where uh, there was lots of potters and they made lots of things out of clay. Um, but we know that the potter makes all that he desires out of the clay that he has and what he's fashioned. He can make anything he wants. He can make something, destroy it, and remake it. And um, what does the potter show in his creation? Uh, as, as someone sitting there with, with clay and the pottery wheel, what does he show in his creation? What is, he, what is he showing whatever he comes up with? He's showing his works, right? He's showing, he's showing what he can make, and he can make things for all different kinds of uses, so if we put God in that aspect of doing that, God is showing his glory in everything that he makes. So I got some more scriptures. Let's flip to and read. Uh, if I can have someone turn to Isaiah 29, verse 16. And then if someone can, so who's got that one? Got a volunteer? Mike, you got that? And then the next one, Isaiah 45, 9. Okay, Rex. And then Isaiah 45, 9. And then someone pick up Isaiah 64, 8. A volunteer for that. Jessica? Okay, and then I'll get Jeremiah as the last one. So start in Jer uh, Isaiah 29, 16.
Okay, so there we're seeing the potter making something out of the clay, and then the clay is questioning the maker and saying that the maker has no understanding of what he's made. And uh, again, that, that doesn't happen, right? The creation doesn't speak back to the creator. Okay, Rex, you got 45.9? So there we have an example again, and these are coming out of Isaiah, where the, the clay is questioning the maker, even questioning the hands that he has to make it, right? And it's just, it, that doesn't happen. That's not, that's not how creation works. Um, the creation doesn't ask the creator those things and doesn't make those statements about it because it's the one being created. Okay, Jessica? 64.8, Isaiah 64.8. So you can see in Isaiah how this author and God, the author, are using this example multiple times as the potter and the clay throughout um, this book that they wrote us, the, the letter. And it's, it's just an example that it's, it's so easy to, to see and to understand because it's, it's common everyday uh, usage. People are doing this all the time. They, there's, there's so many things that they needed in their household. Uh, and they had to make it out of clay. So it's just so easy for everyone to connect the dots and, and see that, well, that, that makes sense that the potter can make what he wants. So in Jeremiah, we're in 18. These are verses 1 through 6. And it reads, uh, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, and it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 18, verses 1 through 6. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. So, is it ironic that Paul is bringing these back to mind when we're talking about the Jews and what God decides to do with them? Or is it pretty natural According to Scripture, I think Paul under, understood his his Scripture well, um, and yeah, it was easy for him to go there and make the same analogy, so that again he can put the reader's mind and heart back in its its proper place. So, it also states that the potter makes. Some vessels for honorable use, and then some for, for common use. What does that mean? Any thoughts on that? Hmm. Um, 
Say that again, Joseph. Oh, yeah. So vessel of honorable use and another for common use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the words um, and, and the original meaning actually are just the opposite. So um, as, as one says, honor would be the opposite of honor. As in the example of um, a museum where you go to, to amuse your mind and think and um, it exercises your mind and an amusement park is the opposite where you don't use your mind, you just go to be entertained. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's got that relationship where it's just the opposite of honorable and then it would mean, yeah, dishonorable, common use. Okay, so in this question, on this verse, on 21, again, it's, it's a question. Or does not the potter have the right? So whose authority is really being questioned in this verse here? As, as Paul's asking it, whose who's, who's authority is being questioned? I see it as Paul's actually challenging the reader, right? Because he, he, he's, he's pointing out the fact that this potter has the right, that God has the right to create as he wills and to use everything as he needs. Paul's use of Scripture to make an analogy is very specific here. Right? So he's actually questioning the reader's authority of their, of their questioning. Yep. Yep. Yep, because it goes back to 19. You will say to me then, right? Okay, so Paul's still on that point as he's bringing this up. And what does right mean? The potter has the right. What does that make you think of? Yeah, it reminds me of Jeremiah 18 that we read. You know, he's created a new creature, a new creature, and and everyone who's been born again. Bless you. Hey, Jerry. Okay, good. Any other thoughts, questions before we keep moving on? Yes, Steve. Um, we were, uh, we were in 21. We just covered 20. We were in 21, but... Yeah, we're both we're right there. What
right? Right? And yet he still got rebuked very thoroughly. <laughs> mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> okay, so as, as we're going through from 19 to 21, we're going to jump into 22 here, but remember again, we're looking at, okay, so Paul says, you will say to me then, so he's addressing their hearts, and then he's, he's turning it around, he's showing them the rebuke because they are made of dust, He's asking them rhetorical questions that they know the obvious answer to. He's questioning their authority as the reader on, on who are they to put themselves above God. So then he jumps in and says, what if? And there's different ways to read this what if. Um, so we could say, what if God, although will, willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endeared with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Or it could read, what if God, you know, like, what if, what is it to you? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So I don't know the tone, but I can imagine that it, it could be um, that second tone that I used. Again, addressing to the reader, like, who are you to question this? Who are you? To ask these questions. And what if God wants to do this? Who are you to say that's, that's right or wrong? And put yourself in a power, in a position of power in your heart and in your mind. But again, he makes some very strong points in this verse um, on to what if God is willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known. So he endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So did God make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's a question that could come up as we're reading through this. Because he's saying, what if? And he's putting it, proposing it as, um, if God decides to do this, who are you to question it? But it also brings to question, did he do this? Did did God make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Yeah. And and in his perfection and holiness and his uprightness and his complete goodness where he cannot sin. It's outside of his character and nature. Yet, we, we have so much sin in the world. Perspective. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Can I have someone flip Proverbs 16.4, unless you got that memorized already? And then First uh, Peter 2.8, if I can have two people grab those. Okay, let's do Proverbs first. 
Okay, there's some food for thought. How about Joseph? You said you got First Peter two, eight. Okay. Interesting, right? Some more food for thought there. And then I'm going to read Romans 2, verse 4, that we went over a while ago, but as we remember, Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Question mark. So there, there's this balance of God's design and our responsibility, right? Because um, in his tolerance and his kindness, he's, he's leading us sinners to repentance. But in our, in our own nature, we're rebellious against God in, in every way. And we are determining that ourselves as as humans who are unregenerate, who aren't repentant, who are living in our natural state, in our natural corruption, um, we choose with all our actions to still be in that position of um, rebellion against God. And then what about just a couple verses back in Romans nine seventeen? Where the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So, again, these are tough questions to wrap our mind around. Um, things that we will be learning and asking in eternity in a, a righteous state. Um, and, and we got to be okay, not completely understanding and knowing all of that which is going on now in our lives and in our state. Because if we're a speck of dust in this entire creation, how can we possibly wrap our minds around everything that there is to, to know and understand in this moment, especially right here and right now, right? As I was, Jeremy was checking on me before the class started, if I was ready enough and said, yeah, as much as I can be, but in 10 years, this might be a different class, right? I hopefully will have learned 10 years worth of, of knowledge and understanding and um, have a gentler way to present things and, um, and uh, be in step with God's word and be more aligned with his will in my own heart than I am right now. That would be my goal and that would be um, in, in sanctification as long as my free will doesn't rebel against God more than it should, which it's always going to in some aspects, right? But as we are sanctified, um, it should have less of that and more of, more of God's, God's power, God himself being bigger in my life and me being smaller in my own. And... I love how you said uh, questioning God in our hostility um, because if, if we can question God in submission and not challenging his authority 
and we can ask him why, but be willing to hear the answer out of Scripture and submit to that, then, then that's a different stance we're taking than asking out of hostility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up here with verse 23. Because um, he, he doesn't end the point he's making in 22. He continues on after asking that question, um, what if God? And then, he, and then he continues on to say, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So in asking that question in 22, and then he's making this statement in 23 as to answer some of the why questions that we may have as we're reading through this, as we're learning. So what are the riches of his glory? What is that? Sunday school answer? <laughs> Jesus! There we go. It's Jesus Christ in his work on the cross, his resurrection, his life that we can now live in him and through him, right? Um, it's, it's amazing. It's the gospel. We see it in, in Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 8, where he came down and uh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for, for all of us, for you, for me, for the Jew, and for the Gentile. Um, 24 even continues on to say, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Uh, God chose to show his riches of glory upon the vessels of mercy. So in displaying his character for his glory, when we say for his glory, he is displaying his character in so many ways, even through just this small amount of verses in this passage, um, to creation, to all of creation itself. And as, as Gentiles, I mean... All of us, all of them should just be ecstatic to know that uh, he has chosen vessels to show mercy to because um, they aren't even Jewish and God still chose them. Although the Jews, you know, from, uh, from early, early on were God's chosen people in general. And now we're seeing that he's chosen Gentiles as well as vessels of mercy to show his glory to, displaying his character and displaying who he is and all the characteristics of God, he's displaying wrath and in vessels of destruction. He's displaying glory in vessels of mercy. Um, in doing this study and listening to uh, one of my favorite guys, Steve Lawson, he, he used this real simple uh, analogy of uh, when he was um, buying a wedding ring for his, his fiance, his wife, a long time ago. He went to a jeweler shop and he asked to see the diamonds and pulled them out and put, them, put one on a glass counter and he just wasn't that impressed by it. And he asked for more and they brought them out and they were so-so. And then the jeweler put that black velvet um, cloth underneath it and the light from the ceiling and the light from the room and everything, it just seemed like everything just got sucked into that diamond and it just exploded with light. Um, and at that point, he was extremely impressed with it. But it had to have the background of the darkness to see how great that, that diamond was. And he used that expression to 
um, just have a simple analogy of um, God showing his wrath and showing his mercy and showing how great his mercy is when you see what, what wrath looks like. So we're seeing that here in these verses. And um, again, it's, some of this is tough to, to explain and understand and go back to the Deuteronomy 29, 29, that some of these things are just for God to know. And um, what he has given us are, are for ours to have and for us to know. So we should study God's word and continue on through this chapter and do our best as Bible students um, to understand it. And I encourage everyone in here, I know half the class was here for the majority of our hermeneutic study, um, and the, the second half joined us at the end, but the four-step process is something that you should be doing yourself and being familiar with so that before you come to our, our classes, um, you have some recognition and knowledge of this text uh, on your own. And as you come to class, if it lines up with what your teacher's teaching, uh, we're, we're on the same thought. If it's not lining up, um, that'd be a good time to ask questions and make sure that at the very most, or at the very least, you're aligned with Scripture and its understanding. So um, again, I encourage everyone to, to do that four-step process, which was uh, make sure you observe the text, right? Look through all of it, all the content, know who's writing to whom at what time and for what purpose. Um, do your own basic interpretation. Understand the principle of the text and then how it applies. So as, you, as we continue on through this, do that as much as you can. You might not be able to get to every one of them, but um, know that the, the next group of, of verses are just important as the ones we read. So I encourage everyone to do that. And that'll wrap us up. Any last thoughts? Questions? Okay. Let me pray for us and we can go fellowship. Lord God, thank you again uh, for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for this body, this church, this group of people whom um, we all love spending time with one another and getting to know each other and uh, just building each other up in love and encouragement. Uh, we pray for those who aren't here this morning again, Lord, and ask you to bless them. And I ask that you bless the needs of this church so that we may continue glorifying you in what we do, what we say, and how we think. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thanks, everyone.